0: Okay, let's start off in Matthew. Uh, We'll be in Matthew and Luke. Um, Go to Matthew and chapter 2. So last week we were dealing with the infancy narrative in Luke particularly. And the, the thing that I'm trying to bring to your attention here is that there is very clear continuity between the Old Testament and the infancy narratives and the announcement passages in the New Testament. As we roll into the New Testament, there's no bumps in the road, okay? And often, unfortunately, under the influence of certain Christian theology, uh, people get the impression that when you pass from the book of Malachi into the book of Matthew, that now you have to put your church glasses on. And, you know, you you take your your kind of Jewish-Israel glasses off and you put your church glasses on, okay? And everything is interpreted in light of the church. But you shouldn't do that. The Bible doesn't tell you to do that. There's nowhere that, that uh, Scripture says, okay, now... You know, stop thinking and interpreting that way, start thinking and interpreting this way. Um, The Bible never says interpret the Bible in light of the cross. And yet there are very influential theologies that do just that. Now, there's a good reason why the Bible doesn't tell you to interpret in light of the cross. And that is, if you've been with me for a while, you'll know that in the Old Testament, although the cross is there, um, the work of Christ is two parts. And the two parts are fused together in the Old Testament. But they're one work. That one work is that he dies for sins and rises again and he sets up his kingdom his new covenant kingdom on earth that's one work of Christ now what gets the emphasis in the Old Testament? the latter you see? the latter just go to these passages we'll be going to Micah in a minute and you'll see again Micah puts the emphasis not on the first coming although he mentions it but on the second coming There's a reason for that, and that's because um, the first coming, just although it's definitive in one way, it leaves a lot hanging. We still live in a world where the devil is the ruler of this age. That's what Paul calls him. Okay, he's the prince of the power of the air. We live in a world of disease and destruction and inhumanity and uh, the whole world out of joint. We live in a, a, an age of corruption where God is still hated and His way is not done on earth as it is in heaven. So, because of that, I hope that you can see the merits of the cross, uh, what they do is they suffice to cover the sins of everyone that believes in Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus ensures eternal life and eternal glory to all those that have trusted in the merits of the cross but as far as God's final consummate action is concerned as far as the fulfillment of his covenant plan is concerned everything's still hanging I don't know if you've noticed but you're not reigning you're not reigning as king as a king or a queen in the kingdom now you can if you if you believe certain kinds of theology you can imagine that you are okay you can tell yourself i am i am i am i'm, I'm you know and jesus is ruling on the throne of David right now and and these prophecies in the Old Testament are coming true just coming true in a a much more expansive way uh, which means uh, different um, than God said in the Old Testament you can also what's also strange about this kind of theology is that not only are we in the kingdom we're also in the tribulation with this theology okay and so, you are, you are reigning as a king but you're also suffering because you're under tribulation. Uh, it's, to me, it, uh, even though it has some very scholarly and godly defenders, this is monkeying around with the Bible. And the reason it's monkeying around is because it's putting human deductions ahead of what the Bible says. It's us moving ahead. And as I've said, uh, we all do it. Our default position is to be independent of God. And the first thing that's independent and the most important thing that's independent is our thought life. It's independent from God. Okay, so a Christian as well as a non-Christian, their default is independence. But it comes out in a different way. For a non-Christian, it's going to go into a form of idolatry. Whether self-idolatry, idolizing a false god, a false prophet, or science, or money, yes, success, something like that, yes, fame, whatever that might be. Evolution. Um, So, it's going to be that. And... That's, that's their autonomy coming out. But for a Christian, it can come out in all kinds of different ways. And anybody who's been a believer for any amount of time is fully aware that drifting from the Word of God is second nature. It's easy. I don't have to work hard at all at drifting away from God. I can do it easily. I have to work... At dying to myself. Isn't that what the Apostle Paul tells us to do daily? Uh, 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, doesn't he tell us in Romans 12 1 and 2 that we've got to put ourselves on the o- altar as a living sacrifice? Not just once, it's a cont- continuity, it's a continuous tense, perfect tense. So uh, we've got to have our minds transformed. Do you see? This is a constant uh, thing. It's an influence from outside, an influence from the Word, an influence from the Holy Spirit that corrects our independence. Right. We know that in practical Christian living. But practical Christian living comes from our thought life. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And so we shouldn't be surprised to find it in our theology either. And in our theology, what we find is that this default uh, works itself out in this pious-sounding and original and intellectual theology. Um, So that the, the idea is that Christ has now come he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. So now Christ has come and Christ has died. The definitive uh, action of God has occurred. The cross of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. It's occurred. As prophecy has been fulfilled in Christ and the, resurrection, uh, the cross and resurrection, and now we have the church, wherein there is neither Jew nor Gentile. Then, and the church is in Christ, do you see? That we look for fulfillment in Jesus and those that are in Jesus. Now, it, that all sounds great. It sounds good. But in order to do that, in order to actually um, make that transaction work, you have to go back into the Old Testament and kind of elbow it a bit and say, look, shut up about Jerusalem, shut up about David, shut up about uh, Israel and all these different places in Israel because what it really means is the world. And what Israel really is, is the church. Do you see? Now, I I have to qualify myself here. Um, it's a lot of doublespeak. Uh, with these people. There didn't used to be. If you've got a King James Bible, you know in the Old Testament, you read in some of the uh, the headings there, you know, the church meets, you know, I, I don't know, the church in defection or the church triumph, back in the Old Testament. Yeah? If you read the old Puritans, uh John Owen, David Dixon, you know, any of these, uh, these old Puritans, they will say the church is in the Old Testament. Uh, the old confessions, Westminster Confession, uh, the Baptist Confession of Faith, uh, 1689, the Savoy Declaration, uh, these all say that the church is in the Old Testament. But modern, the modern guys who say that they stand there, they will do what i keep telling you they do, they prevaricate and they, they switch language, they equivocate all the time, so that um, you will say, well, so you believe that the church is in the Old Testament? No. Sorry. But you believe there's only one people of God? Yes. And there only ever has been one people of God? Yes. And the one people of God is the church. Yes. So, do you believe the church is in the Old Testament? No. (laughs) Honestly, I've had these conversations with these people and I'm not talking about um, people without seminary training. It's usually the ones with seminary training that, that trick themselves this way. Okay? It's really difficult to get them to see what they don't want to see. Um, there are books out there and and, uh, they have titles like this Finding Christ on every page of the Bible. Finding Christ or Preaching Christ from the whole of Scripture. That sounds brilliant, doesn't it? Sounds great. Okay, so how are you supposed to do that? How are you supposed to find Christ in uh, Ezra 3? when it talks about uh, Jeshua the son of Jozadak, and his brethren and priests and Zerubbabel and the son of Shealtiel and his brethren arose and built the altar of the God of Israel to burn offerings on it as it is written in the law of Moses the man of God. How do we find Jesus there? Well according to these guys you see Jesus is looming behind all of these passages. You just have to read these passages in light of the Christ event. You see? The first coming of Christ. And then you can go back there and you can read him in. The problem is, should you be doing that? Is that what the Bible tells you to do? Or is that what you think in your independence, because you're allowing your deductions to race ahead of what the Bible's actually saying okay is that you that have thought that up and then are you going to the Bible to make it say something it doesn't say to back up what you've already decided it teaches and that happens all the time okay all the time and we'll see it we'll, we'll see it a lot in the New Testament particularly and I know that we um, you know in a If this was a a kind of a master's level class, I'd be here with the books and I'll be asking people to read out from different authors where they say this stuff and then ask them to deal with the arguments that they bring up. Okay, but in this this kind of setting, we won't do that. I might do a little bit if we have enough time at the end, although we probably won't. (laughs) So... (laughs) Do you, do you remember um, what I said about how do you build a theology? A theology, by the way, it's the most important thing as far as um, the Bible is concerned. Uh, everyone is a theologian, okay? Everyone, uh, particularly Christians, are theologians. Uh, but many of them are bad theologians, and the bad theologians because they don't care about truth enough, okay? They don't realize that when they're talking theology, they're talking truth. They're talking about things as re- they really are. Um, and that means employing the mind, okay? C1s 2s no, no, although that kind of runs into that. But what I'm talking about is, is this, building a theology, let's say um, creation okay so creation you go to Genesis 1 okay because that's your your standard text for creation and you go up you read it okay and you formulate your doctrine okay your doctrine of creation yeah now you know that you can go to other verses but this is is where you're going to go for this Doctrine, yes? Um, we can go to, uh, like, the resurrection, okay? So, 1 Corinthians 15, for example, okay? So, we can do this, and we can do resurrection. Okay, and you understand this is how you're supposed to build your theology. Read what the Bible says, carefully think about it, and formulates a doctrine that, that you can come down to if people ask, why, why do you teach this? You come down to the scripture that teaches what you have formulated. Do you see? So, that's pretty straightforward stuff. But this is not what we do generally, often, because we have this default setting. We're like Eve in front of the tree. Okay? So, we will agree with God good for food and pleasant to the eyes and then we will also decide that we can add our own stuff we we can deduce our our own stuff too the important thing is not that we agree with God the important thing is that we're not under the word of God we're a little to the side and examining independently do you see we all, that's our default position folks And understand that about yourself. Understand that you've got to get yourself under the word of God. The thing that gets you there is faith. That's what faith is. Okay? Which is why faith is not um, what you were saying earlier. Okay? All right. Just turn the camera over there so we can see. Okay. All right. Now, look at how this can go wrong. Okay? Okay? Um, what we can do... I'm going to take this one out and we'll just go with creation. <laughs> <laughs> and so, what we do is we formulate this doctrine. Okay, so this is our the doctrine that we're looking at. And... Say we've read the Bible, we've got some familiarity with Christian books and Christian teaching and preaching and so on, and instead of going to, um, for our next doctrine, um, and uh, well, let's see, let's say providence. I don't know. Or well, no, let's let's say the fall. Okay, so Genesis three. Okay, and instead of going there and go going up or something like that. What we have a tendency to do, I don't think we mean to do it, but what we sometimes have a tendency to do is that we go like this, okay? We formulate our doctrine and then we go down looking to the, the Bible, do you see? Now, what you're supposed to do is this, there's the arrows, okay, from the Scripture, And then you're supposed to link your theology at the top. But instead, what happens is you you formulate a doctrine, you go across and then you come down. You see the action? And then you can do it again and come down. A lot of theology is like that. It's deductive. It's, ah, that must mean this. Okay? And then you go looking around the Bible for a proof text for it. Watch that. Watch that. Okay? it's Watch it in your own reading of Scripture and watch it in Christian teachers and books that you read. You'll find a lot of that, particularly those that are dealing with, um, you know, Jesus uh, in the Old Testament and so on. All right. Let's move on. Uh, last week, I also should confess that in my fatigue, I didn't really do a chiasm right. It's chiasm, you start with uh, your first line and you'll have your second line and then this will mirror it over here, okay? What I did is I put them over here, but you'll have it in a, an X formation, yes? Something like that. So, I just wanted to keep that up to remind you. Alright. Okay. So, Matthew chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judah in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. These are Magi, these are intelligent people smart guys we don't know where they're from probably Babylon area and so on but we don't know and we don't know really too much about what piqued their interest other, what, other than the fact that they followed a star which wasn't an ordinary star but it was saying where is he who was born King of the Jews alright so who are they looking for what theology do they have They have Old Testament theology. They have Old Testament expectations. Now we, you like to build our little stuff with the, you know, the baby and the crib and the donkey and the three kings and so on. But you, first of all, you realize that's not true to scripture. Okay? But then secondly, I hope that you understand that we put it in a church setting. But we need to, remind ourselves when we see it that they weren't thinking about the church they were thinking about the kingdom of Israel, Davidic kingdom that's what they were thinking and it's important that we, uh, we uh, look at that they've come to worship him so they have an idea here uh, a, a strong sense that this Um, this personage is not just a mere man and as we've seen from certain passages in Daniel and other places that would be borne out by the Old Testament text when Herod the king heard this he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him and when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together he inquired of them where the Christ that's the Messiah the anointed one was to be born so they said to him in Bethlehem of Judea for thus it is written by the prophet now this is a kind of a free rendering which is what they would often do Uh, but you Bethlehem in the land of Judah are not the least among the rulers of Judah for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel and they've as they often did, they they, they kind of targumed, and the idea was to targum things, in other words, they would uh, quote a main scripture then but they might draft in an idea from another scripture uh, in their quotation of a verse. It seems as though that 's what they 've done with the shepherd idea at the end of that quotation of Micah chapter five verse two uh, they've probably got it from ezekiel thirty four now Let's go to Micah 5 and just have a look at the passage in its context. <clears throat> Micah 5 and verse 2. You'll see it's slightly different, but it says the same thing, more or less. But you, Bethlehem Ephrata, It's Bethlehem Ephrata because there were two Bethlehems. So they said that the wise, sorry, the uh, scribes said Bethlehem of Judah, okay, because there was another one, as well. Though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me—that's God, the one to be ruler in Israel. And now look at what it says: whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Now you, in your translation, might be slightly different. Uh, than that from old time, or do you have a slightly different translation ancient from ancient time? You got an NIV. From the days of eternity. Okay, yeah, uh, NIV kind of doesn't do it the best of uh, favors there, but the idea is uh, that this person is uh, everlasting, and so most translations. Uh, bring that in. There is isn't a Hebrew term for everlasting. Okay? So it's just the ages of the ages, Olam. But uh, at the same time, uh, I think it's justifiable to say that this is a particular uh, person who at this time would have been understood to have been this everlasting individual. Um, Can't go into that right now, but uh, I hope you, you can see that what the scribes and the Pharisees did when they, even though they gave a free rendering of, of the scripture, they used it to answer a specific question. They didn't spiritualize it. Did they? They simply quoted it. Okay? He wanted to know, Herod wanted to know where they told him, where they quoted the scripture from Micah 5.2. But looking at Micah here, I hope that you can see that the ruler who is to come forth uh, in Israel from God, this is a, a, a special individual. This person is not just a, another king. This person is to be God's ruler on earth. What covenant are we dealing with here? The Davidic covenant. Do you say the Davidic covenant? All right. So go back to the Matthew passage in two six. Out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Again the idea of the Davidic covenant is is, is there. But then you've got this idea of the shepherd being brought in as well. And that uh, brings to mind, like I said, Ezekiel 34 and Ezekiel 34, other places too. Uh, uh, If you look at the context, you'll find that it's a restoration context, okay? It's a new covenant context. So what they've done is that they've, They've uh, said that this person who fulfills the Davidic covenant will also uh, bring Israel together to shepherd them and lead them in accordance with the Old Testament prophecies and that is new covenant hope. So they brought that in too. Do you see that? We are not on church territory here. And when you read this, don't read it in light of the church. Give the New Testament time to say what it says. That's really important. You know what happens and uh, you uh, you have the the massacre after the flight to Egypt. And yes, we have a use of uh the prophet jeremiah in verse 18 that is not a direct you know in in jeremiah it's it's not particularly talking about the massacre that happened at bethlehem under herod it's jeremiah 31 and it's it's referring there to deportation it's it's something horrible that happened at that place, Rama. Rachel, because she was buried near the Rama, uh, it's used in a figurative sense. She's weeping for her children, do you see? And that, because that's where they were assembled. At this, now what, uh, what uh, Matthew is doing is that he's applying that text. He's not saying here that this was literally fulfilled. The New Testament uses fulfillment in five different ways. By the way, but what he is doing is saying that that this calamity did uh, or did in a sense fulfill the distress that was felt in that Jeremiah passage. So he's applying the Jeremiah passage uh, to what happens. What he isn't doing is, and anyone can see this, whether you hold to uh, our perspective or you take a, a spiritualizing perspective. What he isn't doing is, he's not spiritualizing. Even those people that say, you know, that we do, we ought to spiritualize and we ought to uh, see types everywhere and so on, they wouldn't say that that's what Matthew was doing. They would say he's applying this. Uh, this text to this particular issue. All right, look with me uh, at verses 13 through 15 of chapter 2, quickly. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt and was there until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet saying, Out of Egypt I have called my son. Now that's a direct quotation from Hosea 11.1. But if you look at Hosea 11.1, you'll see that he's not applying that directly to Jesus, he's di- or to the Messiah. He's directing it to Israel because Israel was brought out of Egypt. Do you see? So, Matthew is saying it's fulfilled and yet um, people have said, well, it's not literally fulfilled that way. I hope you can see that. He's, again, he's applying this passage to, uh, to Jesus. How can he do that? What's happening here? it's not the same thing as was happening in verse 18, which might seem a little confusing to you. Why? Well, it's because Numbers 24, verse 8 is probably behind Hosea's quotation in Hosea 11.1. 1. <laughs> you see? Has a scholar called uh, John Sailhammer, who uh, has done some excellent work on this, showing these motifs. But if you'll look at Numbers 24 with me quickly. I just want to show you the context of this which uh, hopefully you'll find interesting. Numbers 24. Well, we'll start from uh, verse 3. This is Balaam. The utterance of Balaam, the son of Beor. The utterance of the man whose eyes are opened. The utterance of him who hears the words of God, who sees the vision of the Almighty, who falls down with eyes wide open. How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your dwellings, O Israel, like valleys that stretch out, like gardens by the riverside, like aloes planted by the Lord, like cedars beside the waters. This is a tranquil paradise that that uh, Balaam is describing it's a prophecy he shall pour water from his buckets and his seed shall be in many waters his king shall be higher than Agag his kingdom shall be exalted God brings him out of Egypt did you see that? now look at verse 9 He bows down, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who shall rouse him? That's from Genesis 49. Okay? That's from the blessing of Jacob on Judah. Okay? That's taking that language there and putting it uh, into the mouth of Balaam, describing this ruler. And then look at what happens next. Blessed is he who blesses you and cursed is he who curses you. That's from the Abrahamic covenant. Do you see that? So there's more going on here, uh, as you can see, than just again um, some blessings for Israel. This is foretelling this future king and this great kingdom and he's brought out of Egypt. Do you see that? So, yes, there's a quotation from Hosea, but is there also this strong link to Moses? through Well, Balaam, but uh, Moses who wrote the book of Numbers. I think that, uh, that we ought to take that very seriously. That being the case, there is a theological tie-in with the way Matthew is using fulfillment here. Okay? It might seem difficult and strange to us because of the church, but if you had the kind of expectation I've tried to build up over the last two courses, it becomes much easier to see this. Okay? Because all you've got is what went before. All you've got is this expectation. All right, let's go to chapter three. Matthew, in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well why didn't he say, repent and believe in Jesus Christ that he died for your sins and rose again for your justification? Because he hadn't. So whatever gospel John is preaching... He's not preaching the gospel that we believe. It's just a, a plain fact, okay? It's a plain fact. It's so plain that people miss it. Um, that's not the preaching of John the Baptist. He's preaching the kingdom of heaven, or that's, which is probably a circumlocution for a kingdom of God. Um, and the kingdom of God is the Old Testament Davidic kingdom the very kingdom that uh, the scribes alluded to in 2.6. Again, fits in with the expectation. So, Jews came out to, uh, to John the Baptist. And Isaiah chapter 40 is quoted of him, verse 3. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord make his paths straight. That, if you look at Isaiah 40, that has to do with new covenant blessing. Okay, I know we didn't study Isaiah 40 an awful lot uh, because I had to be select. But that is talking about new covenant blessing. Do you want to have a look at it a bit more in Isaiah 40? We can do quickly, okay? Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. What covenant are we talking about here? That's new covenant because it's salvation. Okay? But warfare is ended. It doesn't just bring... Uh, pardon for iniquity, it brings peace, safety, comfort, you see, externally as well, in the world. Now, certainly, she's received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins and that's what you find. You find that the Lord will punish Israel for their sins, but he will not make a full end of Israel. Okay, You find this in Amos, you find it in uh, Micah, Hosea, well, all over the place. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. Well, will they or not? I know it's poetic because Isaiah is a poetic kind of guy. All right? But at the same time, behind the poetry is this realism that they will see God. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. And it moves on. If you look at verse 9, it says, uh, Blessings for Zion. So, going back here to John the Baptist in Matthew 3, you can see when, uh, when this is applied to John the Baptist that the kingdom that he's preaching is that kingdom in Isaiah 40. Yes? That's the expectation. It's not some spiritual kingdom. They would have no idea what he was talking about if he meant a spiritual kingdom. And if he did mean a spiritual kingdom, he didn't explain himself very well. Because he wanted them to repent. Um, Verse 9, speaking about children of Abraham. So, there's the Abrahamic covenant. That's important. Uh, Judgment. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Judgment. And then a prophecy from John the Baptist. He is a prophet. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. That's not the gift of tongues. Okay, that's the Holy Spirit and fire. Okay, fire meaning judgment. And. Uh, The baptism of the Holy Spirit here is a new covenant blessing. That's what would have been understood here by the Holy Spirit. And Ezekiel 36 and those kinds of places, they would have come to mind uh, from anyone listening. All right. Chapter 4. So, Jesus is led to the wilderness and he is tempted by the devil. If you are the son of God, verse 3, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And the devil said to him, Well, you're spiritualizing the Bible and how do I know it really means that? No. No. Jesus quoted it and believed what it said and that settled it for Satan as well as Jesus. The, the Bible has power only if it is allowed to speak with its own voice. So Satan twists the Word of God next time, Psalm 91. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, He shall give His angels charge over you and in their hands. They shall bear you up. That's a twisting um, of the scripture. Okay? It is a promise but it's a misapplication. The context is missing. Jesus said to him, it is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. He didn't dispute the interpretation although the interpretation is certainly disputable. Uh, instead, what he did is that he, he gave a very clear counterexample of how that Interpretation clashes with the clear word of God. That cannot be the right interpretation, in other words. Do you see? It cannot be the right interpretation because it clashes with something very clear that God says you shan't do. And that's a good rule, too. If somebody's interpretation clashes clearly with a very straightforward passage of scripture it's probably wrong and needs to go back to the drawing board to figure out what's wrong with it again the devil took him up to an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and he said to him all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me Jesus said to him away with you Satan for it is written you shall worship the Lord your God and him only Shall you serve, and that does that. But look at Luke chapter 4 now. On this one particularly. Luke has a slightly different order because he's being more thematic. But Luke chapter 4, <clears throat> verse 6 well actually verse uh, 5 then the devil taking him up on a high mountain showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and the devil said to him all this authority I will give you and their glory for this has been delivered to me and I give it to whomever I wish therefore if you will worship before me all will be yours Jesus answered and said You don't have any authority at all. Okay? That's a big lie. You know as well as I do that you don't have any authority to give me the kingdoms of the world. So therefore, that's an empty promise and I'm not going to pay attention to you. Do you think that was... Because Jesus did know, okay? So in order for this to be a temptation, I hope that you understand the devil would have had to have been speaking the truth in order for this to have been a temptation hey i can i can do this i can get the kingdom without the cross do you see i can get what get what's mine without the cross in order for that to be a temptation jesus would have had to have known that it was a a real possibility the devil does speak the truth but he's speaking the truth in the service of falsehood. Notice that. It's an interesting, when, you know, if we did ethics, you would see that that's what the devil does. He speaks the truth in, in the service of falsehood. So uh, somebody comes and batters on Corrie ten Boone's door and wants to know if there are any Jews in the house. She should say Yes. Because she's speaking the truth, isn't she? But they come in and they come and they march the Jews off to the concentration camp. Truth at the service of falsehood, do you see? So that's why she shouldn't have said that. It's the same thing as, as you get with uh, uh, the midwives in the book of Exodus, you know? Well they, they just give birth too quickly. Or well, Rahab, you know? Have you seen them? No. it's if if she'd have given in if she'd have told the truth as far as a statement of truth there it would have been in the service of evil in the service of falsehood not in the service of truth all right and that's what you have here with with satan you can think about that but what's interesting is that the devil can give over the kingdoms of the world that's the important thing to notice here alright so after the baptism verse 14 of Luke 4 then Jesus returned in the power of the spirit to Galilee and news of him went out through all the surrounding region and he taught in their synagogues being glorified by all so he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up and as his custom was he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah, okay, or a scroll. This is providence. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. And this is from Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to recover the recovery of sight to the blind, uh, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book. But if you go to Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, you will see that he closed it in the middle of a sentence. Because the next Passage says, the next uh, uh, phrase is about the vengeance of God. Now, please notice this because it's very important. I think I did spend some time speaking about those passages that speak of about the vengeance of God. Um, if you've got a concordance, Isaiah 61 we're going to, if you've got a concordance, look up the word vengeance and look at those passages. You'll see it's very interesting, and particularly in the prophetic portions. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because He is, uh, because the Lord has anointed me, so that makes Him a Christos. To preach good tidings to the poor, he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the back captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Now, um, Jesus said the opening of the eyes of the blind, okay? He added that in because that's something nobody in the Old Testament could do. All right, so he adds that in. Again, he's, it's, it's, it's uh, strange to us that he should do that, but that was often the way that they would do that. We'd, they'd have a kind of a free quotation that would add a bit of information in. Um, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, give them beauty for ashes. Remember, I told you when we were going through the prophets that the prophets often have this this emphasis on judgment and then blessing for Israel, okay And that's what you've got here: judgment, but then blessing. okay comfort, but then vengeance, okay? And it's in the same turn of phrase. that's because they happen together. In the eschaton, uh, at the last day. So this person who comes uh, um, with the blessings of the Spirit of God to proclaim the acceptable year of the of the Lord comes first in vengeance, but then he comes in peace and blessing. Notice that. But what Jesus does is he understands the Old Testament better than the people that are hearing in the synagogue he understands there's going to be a gap between those two or between sorry the proclaiming the acceptable year of the lord and the day of vengeance and the comfort do you see there's going to be a gap between what we now call the first coming and the second coming in the old testament they're fused together They're fused together. But they are separated because of the unbelief of Israel. Okay? So, back in Luke, he closes the book before mentioning the day of vengeance because this is not the time for the day of vengeance. The day of vengeance... I'm going to take you back to Isaiah. Isaiah 63... Well, it will be very clear what he's talking about here. What is the day of vengeance? Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Bosra? So, this is, he's coming here from um, uh, the area of Jordan, that kind of area. Um, This one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength... I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. So he's coming here in battle, array, but he's also coming to save. 63, sorry. Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone and from the peoples no one was with me for I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments and I have stained all my robes for the day of vengeance is in my heart and the year of my redeemed has come. There's salvation there but not before vengeance. That second coming language. Do you see? And you're going to see Revelation 19 is going to refer to that passage. And chapter fourteen too. Gonna refer refer to that passage. Second coming stuff. So the day of vengeance is the second coming. But so he cuts off in the middle of verse two of Isaiah sixty one because he's not saying that this is my coming for my kingdom. Okay. This is to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Jesus knows what he's doing when he hands the book back. but We often miss it. We, we uh, think, oh, he's setting up his kingdom. He doesn't set up his kingdom until after he's come in vengeance. He began to say to them, verse 21, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Well, if, He'd have gone on and read on. He could not have said that. Because he didn't come to vanquish his enemies in, at the first coming. So we need, to, we need to pay attention here, okay? Let's not... Let's try and get the, the rest of the New Testament out of our heads... Let's just come through with an Old Testament mindset, an Old Testament expectation and let the thing unfurl in front of us. We are in very, very Jewish territory here. Do you see that? The expectation is fully in line with what we read in the Old Testament. So these people that say, you know, how do you interpret the Old Testament and the New Testament? Well, so far we're not having any problem. It is true that we have to study more with Matthew's use of fulfillment, okay? And um, we can't do that here, but there, are, like I said, there are five uses or ways that he uses that uh, that terminology. But when it comes to these kinds of passages, no Jew would have had any problem understanding what Jesus meant in the synagogue. All right, let's, uh, let's move forward and let's go to, uh, where was I going to go to next? I'm trying to keep the momentum here. Let's go to Matthew. <coughs> and I was going to go to 13, but do I need to go somewhere else first? Yes, I do. Matthew chapter 4, Matthew chapter 4, verse 12. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum which is by the sea in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Don't divorce verse 17 from the previous verses. The reason the light is dawning is because of the preaching of Jesus about the kingdom of heaven. He's preaching the same message as John the Baptist was preaching. Jesus is not preaching that he's going to die for our sins. In fact, anybody who has intelligently read the Gospels knows that that is not what he preached. Not only did he not preach it, he only told a few people that that would happen, and even they didn't believe him. He kept it a secret. If you want to see this, look in Mark's gospel. Mark is the place to to really see this developed. Well, three times Jesus predicts it in Mark's gospel, and they don't get it. Now, in Matthew 16 he uh, says, well, who do you say that I am? and uh, Peter gets it right and then he says, well, yeah, good, right well, I'm going to die I'm going to be delivered into wicked hands and crucified and slain and, and rise again on the third day and be this far from you this will not happen to you get behind me, Satan he's telling them he's not preaching it publicly so there's a Peter doesn't get it, do you see? It's not a thing to be believed, it's a thing to be avoided. We must understand that that message is not preached until the resurrection or after the resurrection of Jesus. And I will show you why. It's essential that you understand that without the resurrection of Jesus, there cannot be a proclamation of what we call the gospel. Mm -hmm. It's impossible It is not possible before the resurrection of Jesus to preach that Jesus died for our sins and rose for our justification. I mean, not just because he hadn't done it yet, but just because the theology of it doesn't work either. And when we get to the book of Acts and so on, I'll show you why that's the case. All right. Look at this passage in verses 15 and 16. It's from Isaiah again. Um the context, the first part is from Isaiah 9. Um, the context is the Davidic covenant. Do you want to go there in Isaiah 9? Yeah? Okay, Isaiah 9. Now you know Isaiah 9, 6 and 7... Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali and afterward more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan in the Galilee, in Galilee of the Gentiles the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death upon them a light has shined I'm sorry if I have to go so quickly here You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor as in the day of Midian. That's, um, what's his name? Gideon. For every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle the garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire. In other words, there won't be any more use for armaments, okay? Apart from for firewood. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government. What government? The Davidic covenant. Yeah, yes. Yeah, government will be upon his shoulder and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He brings in peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David, just in case you don't know, it's a Davidic covenant, and over his kingdom to order it and establish it in judgment and justice. From that time forward, even forever. Okay, not difficult, folks. This is not difficult. Isaiah 11, okay, if if you want to see this uh, furthered the prophecy of the branch, look with me at verse 4, chapter 11. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins. Faithfulness the belt of his waist, the wolf also will dwell with the lamb, the leopard will and lie down with the young goat, and so on and so forth. Uh, verse 9, The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Why? Because he's the prince of peace. He brings peace. He brings shalom. Not just feeling, you know, a little light-headed and no problems and so on, but he brings peace on the whole planet. Peace between the, the beasts of the field. He brings real shalom. You see? So, I hope you can see the context of, of uh, the prophecy about Zebulun and Naphtali is in the context of the Davidic covenant and the kingdom. Uh, also, in uh, verse 16, I think that's Isaiah 42. That's where I've got my line drawing. Isaiah 42, verses 6 and 7. So, just have a look at that one quickly. Now, Isaiah 42, we've been to Isaiah 42, and I was there, and I stamped my foot, and I made a big... uh, issue of Isaiah 42 because I said here that Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 49 prove not only that Jesus you know the Messiah introduces the new covenant it proves that he is the new covenant and I'll come back to that he actually is the new covenant himself okay Uh, but um, let me see well, what did I say? Six and seven? Six and seven. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will hold your hand. I will keep you as and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. That's, he's almost certainly alluding to this passage. But again, it's one of these mixed quotations that you, you often find notice I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people. That's the servant, verse 1. So when, and you're supposed to make these connections, (coughs) okay, you're supposed to. So when Jesus is is, uh, saying repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he's saying this kingdom in the Old Testament is just round the corner. But it is conditioned on repentance. So, whether you like it or not, whether it fits in with your theology or not, there is an offer, at least implied here, there is an offer that goes out to Israel from the Messiah. If they will repent, the kingdom comes. It's a bona fide offer. And so, enemies of this position will say, well, how can that happen How can God make an offer to someone when he knows they're going to reject the offer? You know what's really weird about half of these people that do that? Most of them are Calvinists. Most of them are five-point Calvinists. And so I respond to them, well, you believe that the gospel can be offered to the non-elect sincerely, don't you? You believe that when the gospel is offered to the non-elect, who Jesus hasn't died for, that that's a sincere offer of the gospel. So you should have no problem with an offer going out from God to Israel that if they will repent, the kingdom will come. Because you teach that in your theology. You see? It's strange um, how people have you know, they, they, they draw one conclusion based on a deduction and they won't draw another deduction that's well, it's not actually a deduction. It's based clearly on what the Bible says. Why? Why is this, this problem going on? Well, it's because this independent mindset. Do you see? It doesn't matter what the Bible says. They've already decided what it teaches and then called it biblical. And if you don't believe it, that's because you're not biblical. By the way, I do believe in election, okay? I mean, it's obvious that, that there is an election. And, and by the way, if you're an Arminian, you believe in election too, if you've read Arminius, which you probably haven't. But, but if you've read it, he believed in election too, okay? So it's not a problem. It's, it's the way that the mechanism works. I'm not, I'm more Calvinistic than Arminian, but at the same time, I do recognise that that there, there certainly is an election of God. Uh, this is not systematic theology course, so I can't go into that. <laughs> All right, <clears throat> but it is a, it's important. If you if you are a Christian, it's, you are elected by God. Now, certainly, um, he he didn't overpower your will. He didn't do anything like that. Okay, you chose because um, you chose Christ under the. Um, the wooing of the Holy Spirit, but it was your choice. It wasn't God choosing for you. You chose. Okay? Please understand that. Okay? And again, we can, we can, uh, if we have time, we can talk about that another time. But please understand that. Okay? Um, God, uh, theologically, what's important here is that God does not bypass the human instrument that he's made. Okay, That's really the principle. God does not um, elbow his way through. He goes through and respects the, the image that he's made. Now, sometimes he has to convict and uh, he has to enlighten and do all of that stuff okay, to get past on na- uh, natural enmity, but he, he will not decide for us. Okay, it's got to be our decision because he's bypassing his own work if he does that. Yes. All right. Chapter 13 of Matthews. Uh, no, chapter 10 of Matthew. So, a little time has gone by and now Jesus is sending out the disciples and he's telling them, he's giving them powers here and he's telling them, verse 12, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles and do not enter into the city of the Samaritans. Well, why not? But go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Well, he's being very selective here. He's being discriminatory. I'm sorry, Matthew 10? Verse 6 now. Verse 6, okay. And as you go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So they are preaching the same thing that Jesus is preaching and the same thing as John the Baptist was preaching. Please notice that. They're the preaching. We're, we're now on the 10th chapter of, of Matthew and they're still preaching this message. Moreover, he deliberately tells them not to go to the Gentiles. So we're still very much in Israelitish territory here and we still have Old Testament expectations fully intact. Uh, you you notice in the Isaiah 42 passage there was that reference to the Gentiles yeah, bringing blessing to the Gentiles. That's an Old Testament teaching. And I, I pointed that out when we did the last course. Of course there's blessing for the Gentiles. It's in the Abrahamic covenant. Remember that when we get to the church. Okay? Remember that because that's what's going to help you uh, over the hurdle of the newness of the church. And why Paul doesn't seem to be very phased by it. He mentions it. But he's not very phased by it. All right. <clears throat> Moving on. Chapter 13 of Matthew. Any questions, by the way, so far? Because we're zooming through this and... Questions, but that's fine. All right. so this is the chapter on the parables of the kingdom ok so let's have a look at this one again in light of the expectations that we have um, from the Old Testament Jesus is not preaching his death he's not preaching his resurrection that's not his message so don't try and read that into this passage unless you might think it's in there covertly well let's see on the same day Jesus went out of the house and sat by the sea and great multitudes were gathered together to him so that he got into a boat and sat and the whole multitude stood on the shore and he spoke many things to them in parables saying behold a sower went out to sow this is a very important first parable Okay. And as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside and the birds came and devoured them. Some fell on stony places. You know this parable, don't you? Okay? So you know you know about this stuff. All right. Now, notice here that later on there's going to be an explanation of this parable. Which is going to not just help the disciples, it's going to help us too. Okay? verse 10 the disciples came and said to him why do you speak to them in parables I would have asked that question too and he answered and said to them because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven but to them it has not been given for whoever has to him more will be given so it's something to do with um, with hearing if you look at Mark the way that Mark brings this out in Mark 4 it uh, Particular emphasis is placed on the way you hear. Okay? I'm not going to go there, but it's in Mark 4. Emphasis is placed here on the way that you hear. He that has to him more will be given. He, He will have abundance. And whoever does not have, because you haven't heard properly, you've not used your ears properly, even that which he has will be taken away from him. Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because seeing they don't see. They're, they're, they're using their eyes, but they're not using their eyes properly, because they're not seeing what God wants them to see. Now, of course, it's not just a matter of, of uh, the organ called the eye, because the eyes is linked to the mind. And that's what's really important. They're not interpreting what they're seeing correctly. And hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Of course they don't understand because they're not using their eyes and their ears for what they've been given them for. We're like that too. We sometimes don't understand because we are not using our eyes and ears for the reason God gave them. Just in the same way, we don't use our words to edify. We don't use our language To speak to ourselves about the things of God. We speak to ourselves a bunch of lies from Satan or things that we've made up. Or to curry our own sins. Yes? Or to defend and justify ourselves. We, 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 We speak lies to ourselves. We don't use our words for what God has given them for. And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand. I don't need to go through all that. That's judgment. It's a judgment against the way that people hear. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For assuredly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. He's really full of himself, isn't he? Have you ever read the Gospels, just trying to think that Jesus is an ordinary man, or an ordinary person like you? You put these words into your mouth in front of a crowd. Okay, it's it's he's either like C.S. Lewis said, he's either a liar, or he's a lunatic, or he's a Lord. Okay. Therefore, hear the parable of the sower. Right, interpretation time. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, and they've just been talking about people not understanding, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who received the seed by the wayside. Well, okay, so who's the wicked one? The wicked one is obviously the birds because they're the ones that snatch the seed. The seed is obviously the word. Do you see? You've got to... You've got to go back and do some work yourself. He who received the seed in stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Okay? Lots of people in the church all through history have done this. Yet, he has no root in himself and endures only for a while for when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word immediately he stumbles. A little bit of pressure. You put a little bit of pressure on these people and they cave. Now, he received the seed among the thorns is he who hears the word and the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. He may have been been fruitful in a sense, but he becomes unfruitful. But he who received the seed on good ground, that's his heart, obviously, You see, who hears the word and understands it, understands. You see the emphasis on understanding? You hear in order to understand. You hear the word of God in order to understand the word of God. Not just to have fuzzy feelings. In fact, not primarily to have pink tea, fluffy feelings. You hear the word of God to understand it so that you understand the world. You understand what you are in the world. You understand that God is in the world. You learn to look at the world through God's eyes. That's hard for a lot of people. Hard. It's hard for me. Yeah, I find that most people I witness and share with, they've got a God of their imagination. People yeah. They don't even know the real God. Yeah. Well, no, it's not just, yeah, for unsafe. I find it hard. Mm-hmm. I do. What we're doing up here is teaching you for them Uh, anyway (laughs) you can you can uh, ask yourself that question later Um, so they produce fruit all right so there's your interpretation i hope you can see your interpretation is straightforward okay but you do have to do a little bit of work but it's fairly okay so that's going to be your guide for the rest of the chapter Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. Okay, well, I know that the seed is the word. Okay, because it wasn't the last parable. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. Okay, who was the enemy last time? It was a bird. Well, birds don't sow. Okay, so this enemy, it's now, he's, he's a different guy. So this tells us that the interpretation, the man and so on, this is a completely different parable and you interpret it on its own terms, do you see? So the word is not here necessarily the word of God. It may be, but you've got to have fresh eyes and ears. When the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, Then the tares also appeared. You know the tares, uh, they look like it, the real deal, but they're not. He said to them, an enemy has done this. The servant said to him, do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, no, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. The wheat is important. The tares will have to stay until the wheat is ready. Let both grow together until the harvest and at the time of the harvest I will say to the reapers first, gather together the tares and bind them in bundles and burn them. To burn them, sorry. Not and burn them straight away. To burn them. But gather the wheat into my barn. So, two different destinies here. Two different kind of judgments. Um, Look at verse 36. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house... And his disciples came to him saying, explain to us a parable of the tares of the field. So, in case you're having problems with the second parable, here it is. He answered and said to them, he who sows the good seed is the son of man. That's him. The field is the world. So, not the heart anymore. You see, like in the first, it's the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom. It's not the word but the tares are the sons of the wicked one the enemy who sowed them is the devil the harvest is the end of the age the end of the age and the reapers are the angels so the reapers that say well you know let, let's go in there and separate them they're the angels and the son of man is saying no don't do that until the end of the age all right now, what does that automatically imply? Don't do it until the end of the age. What does that imply straight away? Second coming. No. Kinda. <laughs> Kinda. Well, Kinda. Well, also that the angels have a specific purpose. Until that That's good. All right. That's fine. But what's he preaching? What's he been preaching up till now? Kingdom. The kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven. It's it's a coming if you (coughs) repent. But now what's he predicting? Good. But let both grow together until the harvest. And the harvest is what? The The end end of the age. So what is he now predicting? A time gap. The kingdom is not round the corner. Do you see? And you, Susan rightly said the second coming, although uh, it doesn't overtly say that, but you are right. It is the second coming because it's the second coming when Jesus comes and he separates, um, you know, the the uh, wheat and the tares with the angels and so on. And He he will predict that, okay? So, again, go back to the synagogue in Luke 4, Isaiah 61. He stops before he says the vengeance of our God because that's second coming language. But he knows that uh, between the first part of Isaiah 61.2 and the second part of Isaiah 61.2 will be a long time. And so he knows that in preaching the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, repent and so on, he knows that there will not be, that kingdom will not come until the end of the age. Do you see? Notice this tension. That's what I'm trying to, uh, to uh, bring to your attention here. Notice the tension that's there. And the vengeance comes first. First and first and yes, mm-hmm. yes. All right. Well, what I see is the conflict for the disciples, thinking, yeah. well, wait a minute, the kingdom is supposed to be peace everlasting. And now you're talking about tears and, yes. and judgment. Yeah. yeah, maybe, but it appears as though they're not getting a lot of it. Yes. You know, it's but that's so. also the expectation, though, yeah, exactly very, yeah, very very good ok so John gets two points he may have been late <laughs> but he gets two <laughs> points because he's quite right the, the only reason to explain the slowness of the disciples is the fact that they had you know this, this idea of uh, of the kingdom that had been uh, shaped by the Old Testament prophecies Therefore, verse 40, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness. So, this is second coming language. And will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. There's the kingdom. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Okay? All right. Let's have a look at some of these other um, parables that we skipped. So, is this why his focus is on the Jews first? Yeah. We need to settle this before we go to the Jews. Yeah. Because what you find in the Old Testament uh, plan of salvation, as we might call it. Okay? Uh, And you can see it in Isaiah 49 is a good place to see it um, but what you what you see is that Israel is dealt with uh, if you want to see Zechariah go from Zechariah 8 all the way through to uh, well 14 really because it's we, we when we looked at Zechariah we showed that okay and um, then Israel is redeemed. Not all Israelites, but Israel is redeemed, okay, by this uh, coming Messiah, this king. And then what you find is that uh, Israel becomes uh, the head, not the tail in the language of... uh, of uh, isaiah Uh, and then goes out and the gentiles we'll just call them gentiles nations are drawn to israel okay they're drawn israel has a missionary enterprise as it were and a missionary uh, function and the Gentile nations are drawn to Israel in, the, in that kingdom set up and salvation is offered to the Gentiles through what's going on in Israel yeah do you remember this from the last course please tell me yes yeah alright because All right. I brought my handkerchief uh, just in case if I needed to cry in it Okay, let's have a look at uh, verse 33. Another parable he spoke to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal, a meal, uh, uh, sorry, till it was all leavened. Oh, what chapter? oh Matthew 13. Yeah. Yeah, sorry. All right, so let's look at this again. Now, we hopefully, because... Hanabree's been drubbing it into you all well all of these these courses, all of these lessons. The expectation is Jewish. The expectation is Jewish. Leaven. popular interpretation. Yeah. Level is, the leaven is the gospel. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> <Really>? <laughs> Under that interpretation, which is held by most evangelical scholars, uh, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till all was leavened. Well, what's the meal then? The, the, what's that? Yes, well done. Two points. Okay. The meal is the world. Gospel going out to the world. This is positive. A positive message. Do you see that? Mm-hmm. So, three measures? Does that have to do with like Judea, Samaria, and the end of the world? You know, the Who knows? <laughs> the problem is, it's wrong. Lebanon is never positive. They're, no, it's not. It's not. A Jew would never think that leaven was a positive thing. And he certainly wouldn't think it was the gospel. And if he was the gospel, what gospel would he be thinking it was? The gospel of repent because the kingdom's at hand. Do you see? Unless Jesus is just talking past them all, and he's really talking to us. By the way, that's what this kind of of theology does it ends up saying that the um, that a lot of the time Jesus and certainly the Old Testament prophets are really not talking to the people they're talking to. They're talking to us. Yes, they're talking to us because the the uh, expectations that the uh, were, that were carried by the prophets and so on were not literal according to these, this interpretation. The only ones who have the real, who really get it now because of the cross and because of the resurrection are the church. If that's the case, the Bible's for the church. It's not for anybody else. That's another big theological problem with uh, that way of interpreting things. Uh, God becomes disingenuous to the people that he's talking to until he finally, you know... um shows his hand well I don't believe that. that's what God does so this is not this is, this is not right this is, the, this is the way you do it when you have a theology that reads the New Testament back into the Old Testament or starts with the church and starts with the cross of Christ and the preaching of uh, the death and the resurrection of Jesus but that's not what's going on here so that can't be right can't be right well is there another possible interpretation okay let's put the other one up here the other one is that leaven is sin okay so was a kingdom of heaven, like sin. i'm going to get there I'm going to get there. The That's a very good question. It's a very good question. But you see, what's he's he's assuming something? What's he assuming? That the kingdom of heaven is good. That the kingdom of heaven is always good, in this context. Okay, is always good. Notice that before uh, it said that he will, The kingdom of heaven is like, and then it's like. There's there's Satan. He's sowing stuff in it. Wheat and tares. He's sowing tares in the kingdom of heaven. Did you notice that? Well, I saw that as the kingdom of heaven. When heaven is down and <coughs> the kingdom is here, then there's still gonna be that sin in nope. the world that we talked about in the last class. it nope. be this and doesn't want to pluck out, right? No nope. in Because remember what is the Action of the plucking out and the burning, and so on. what's that? That's the second coming, so that's before the Davidic kingdom of righteousness. So, the kingdom of heaven he's talking about now that ends at the end of the age is before the second coming. Do you see? And in that, the devil sows strife and tears. You there? Okay, so now with that negative thought in your head looking at verse 33 negatively and looking at leaven okay look at the woman's action what's she doing she's hiding it she's not a good woman she's hiding it it shouldn't be there all right until the whole thing was leavened now, whether the the meal is the world, it could well be, but it's probably the idea is the kingdom itself, okay? The kingdom itself, but from a negative or or, or uh, um, another angle, not the viewpoint from God's perspective, but the viewpoint from, if you like, the the devil's perspective, okay? hiding sin, hiding evil, hiding leaven in the kingdom until the whole was leavened. That's a destructive measure. I hope you can see that. The Jew, as soon as he heard leaven, would say, that's not good. Passover, what did they have to do? They had to make sure no leaven in and around the house. They understood that, that symbolism that was embossed on their minds. Later on, Paul's going to say, little leaven leavens the whole lump. Mm -hmm. Jesus is going to say, beware of the leaven of the scribes of the Pharisees. And he's not talking about bread. It's negative. Throughout the Bible, it's negative. So, this, uh, you see, it's not what you expect, is it? Because we've been raised to think, oh, positively, okay? The leaven's the gospel and the whole world's going to be evangelized. The Bible doesn't teach that. Yeah. Okay. That's, by the way, that's uh, a particular eschatology called postmillennialism. millennialism Okay. Which means that uh, there are different branches of it. But the basic idea is that God, through the church, is going to uh, bring about, uh, tip the balance in favor of God and bring about a uh, government and order of righteousness in the world before Jesus comes back. At its classic explanation, it is the world is going to be evangelized and saved and then Jesus will come back. Okay, there are people that believe that. So, so they will interpret it that way. But that's not how a Jew would interpret it. He's going to interpret it this way, negatively. Okay, so I'll put my little X up here. This is going to be the kingdom of heaven. Okay, it's not, the kingdom of heaven is not heaven. The kingdom of heaven, as a circumlocution, a Jewish circumlocution for kingdom of God. Okay? Jews would often, and Matthew's a very Jewish gospel, Jews would often not speak the name of God. They would use a circumlocution. Okay? A, a substitute name. Okay, so, verse 44. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid and for joy over it goes and sells all he has and buys that field. That's good, yes? So something, uh, a man is discovering something. He's discovering the kingdom of heaven and he sees the value of it. He understands what's Jesus been saying. You have to understand, do you see? So, he understands it and it becomes the most valuable thing to him. That's what Jesus is saying. It's a positive spin now. Now, in the first two parables, you had positive and negative together. Yes, the men who received the word of God with joy brought forth fruit. Those that didn't. Uh, those who were the children of the kingdom and those who were the children of the wicked one positive and, and negative now we're having some negative ones and some positive ones do you see the perspectives he's trying to throw light on uh, the kingdom of heaven between his first coming and the day of vengeance or the end of the age. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls who, when he had found one pearl of great price went and sold all that he had and bought it. Positive. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind which, when it was full they drew to shore and they sat down and gathered the good into vessels but threw the bad away. That reminds you of the second parable. And he even goes in verse 49 to, to show that. So it will be at the end of the age. So the dragnet is about the end of the age. The angels will come forth and separate the wicked from the just. So who are the people with the dragnet? Who are, who are the ones that are throwing the dragnet out? The angels. They're the ones who are separating, do you see? So he's focusing now at the end of the age to that separation. The separation of the wheat and the the tares. Cast them into a furnace of fire they will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. That's what he said in the second parable. Jesus said to them, have you understood all these things? And they said, yes Lord. (laughs) 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 Yes Lord. Because of their expectation they weren't reading it with New Testament glasses on. They only had one channel of thought, as it were, do you see? They were expecting the kingdom. So that was, they didn't have the problems that we encounter because we're trying to read it in light of the church. But I hope you can see that there isn't a problem here, but he calls it the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. He's not saying this is the Davidic kingdom. This is the kingdom of righteousness and peace. He's saying right now because he's preaching the kingdom but within the kingdom as as he finds it there is sin. There is Satan. He knows that. He's just had an encounter with him. Uh, There is the growth of wickedness as well as the uh, the growth of, of the elect. I've missed one. Fifty-one, right? <clears throat> no, <clears throat> no. Where's the? Uh, where's the one with the tree? the mustard seed 31 I knew I'd missed one alright the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his field which indeed is the least of all seeds but when it is grown it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches what on earth is that talking about well it's obviously talking about growth But what kind of growth is it? It Brings peace and rest. This seems to be a double-edged thing here. Could be either way. Uh, Birds, well, (laughs) the birds in the first paragraph were the Satan. Mm -hmm. Okay? So it could be predicting the growth of evil and certainly the next one does. Doesn't it? the the leaven in the meal that does mm. or it could be the growth of good secret uh, you know as it were secretly and it it uh, attracts the right things the people the things that it should it does what god wants it to do in other words so there's a positive spin if it's a positive spin then uh, the parable of the mustard seed is the positive growth and the parable of the leaven is the negative growth and so you have a balanced view and i tend to take that position all right any questions (laughs) so this gathering is the gathering that means Preacher, I'm not going there. <laughs> it doesn't say that. No, that's what I'm saying, is, yeah. I'm not telling you that. Okay. The, the, there's a reason for that. I know it's agonising, uh, but good, 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 yeah, good. Yeah. Because um, what I don't want to do is to jump ahead. I want to just let it unfold. I know that we have our assumptions. But we've got to try to be aware of our assumptions and and just try to let it say what it says. At the moment, my only concern is to show the, the Jewishness and the Old Testament um, uh, milieu of this ministry of Jesus. Okay? That's my point. We are now... Um, 13 chapters into Matthew and we are still very much in Old Testament territory. And even Luke is on Old Testament territory, isn't he? Okay, Mark. What Mark is telling you um, there's a number of things but the main thing with Mark is that this secret of the identity of Jesus and of his death and so on it's, it's, it's not known apart from through demons. The demons are saying, we know who you are. But then the next person who says, who really shows that they know who he is, is the centurion at the cross. That's in chapter 15. You know, truly this man was the son of God. That's Mark's great, uh, what's the word, not commencement point that 's his climax. Conclu- yeah climax his, his conclusion is right he's there you see that 's where he 's driving to. do you recognize what the Centurion recognized John of course he's got his own agenda he's this more theological agenda about salvation and about the identity of Jesus as the I am and so on all right, so next week we 're going to um, do more in uh, in Luke. Um, I want to... We've got to get moving. Unfortunately, I'm sorry about this, but we, we do have to get moving. What have we been doing? We haven't been moving? <laughs> uh, so... Uh, Yes, Uh, uh, the stuff I want to do but we can't really do, so um, we'll go to Luke 13, just read Luke 13.